Hey everyone, I'm Alex Cantor. And I'm Lily Rosenthal. Welcome to our podcast, Hot Pastrami. We are coming to you from our favorite booth at Cantor's Deli here in LA. We're going to invite some of our friends to join us for a chat over some matzo ball soup and pastrami sandwiches. So join us for new episodes of Hot Pastrami every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. See you soon. Bye. I am Sarah Jane Case, and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello, friends. Happy Friday. Today, I am talking with Sam Greenberg, sexuality researcher and coach, as well as Lindsay Frazier, a licensed marriage and family therapist and a certified sex therapist. And we're talking about, I think you might have guessed, sexuality and the Enneagram. I am so excited. I've been following both of them on Instagram for a hot minute now, and I'm obsessed with their content. I reached out and was like, can you please come on the podcast? So Sam and Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thank you. So let's start with the history of sexuality and the Enneagram. Like, how did we get into this? How did this start? Okay, so there's not that much of a history of this topic, which is why folks listening may not know that much about it. Basically, there's a couple of books over the past, you know, decade or so that I've just barely touched on it. And mostly from kind of a theoretical perspective, like the Enneagram Relationships and Intimacy by David Daniels and Suzanne Dion that has some chapters on sex, sex, love, and your personality, and the Enneagram and Love and Work by Helen Palmer. Like they all mention it some, Mm -hmm. but there hadn't been a lot of conversation at least that we knew about in the Enneagram community about this. And there's there definitely been no research, which is kind of where I come in. I'm coming from a research angle. And so the the history of the topic is more or less that there isn't much history until now when we're starting to build like these multidisciplinary conversations about it. So yeah, what are those conversations looking like? What does that research look like? I mean, how are we getting this information? I know you have working groups. What is that? Yeah, what's going on behind the scenes over there? Well, I think what was interesting is is there were a lot of us independently on our own doing things. So I had been here in Minneapolis and I had been introduced to the Enneagram probably about 10 years ago and had started incorporating it in the work that I was doing around sexuality in the Enneagram as well. And then for me, I happened to do a podcast for a colleague and then the other person that's doing research, or actually there's three people kind of that have been doing the research, which is Frederick Kunin, Valerie Wanamaker, and then Sam Greenberg. But Frederick reached out to me because he's like, hey, I hear you're doing Enneagram and sexuality work. But I think what was happening before this group got formed is there were a lot of us kind of independently doing our own little things sort of in the different different parts of the world in the country. So I was here doing my work and Sam was doing her work and Frederick and Valley were sort of doing their own work. And we were, I think the group formed, has it been three years now, Sam? I don't know. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Three years that I think, was it you? Yeah. I think it was you and Frederick and Valley that sort of kind of got the group together. Am I correct on that? Yeah, mostly Frederick. And then I was one of the earlier members and it's it's multidisciplinary, meaning that we have researchers, therapists, coaches, spiritual people, all different perspectives on this. What I was going to say, one of the things I love about the group is every Enneagram type is represented, though we have many more sexual instinct dominance than others, though there are a few of us that are social and self-preservation, but there's about 10 people in the group. Whoa, that's amazing. 
That's interesting. I know we're going to talk about instincts later, so I'm excited to hear why that might be the case. But what caused each of you to be interested in this topic? Like why combining the Enneagram with sexuality? What sparked that interest? I think we have very different reasons, so we can maybe both share. But for me, I am a researcher by training and a methodologist by training, a sexuality researcher primarily. And when I was going to do postdoctoral work, I had heard that you're supposed to study something you never get tired of talking about. And like, I love to talk about the Enneagram and I love to talk about sex. So (laughs) I started looking into it and seeing that there had been no, at least no academic or research work done at the intersection of those topics. And then I got really excited to do it. So in terms of where the research comes from, from me, the concrete research we have from my end comes from my doctoral work on sexual desire and Enneagram type. And I conducted a large study of people who already knew their Enneagram type and their Mm -hmm. kind of sexual desires and assertiveness and patterns and then analyzed it. So that's how I got into this topic. What about you, Lindsay? I come from a little bit of a different place where I was already a therapist and I already had had become a certified sex therapist. But I think a good place to start is why I became a sex therapist in the first place. Mm-hmm. So when I had been doing my practicum or internship, I ended up at a place called Neighborhood Involvement Program. And I was one of the one of two marriage and family therapists there. And I would get all the couples that would come in. So it was a center for people that didn't have health insurance. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. But, you know, when you're working with couples, sexuality sort of comes in all of the time. And when you're a grad student Mm -hmm. in the marriage and family therapy program, you maybe get one course in sexuality and that's kind of it. And so I, I really wanted to be able to be providing a space where I felt knowledgeable and knew what to provide. And so went back and sort of got that certification, which is like another 30 credits of education, like about a two-year process, like mentorship before you can be certified. But w- what was interesting for me, this is where the Enneagram comes into play, is, is that I didn't see people like me in the sexuality world. A lot of what you do see, and we're going to come to a little bit more about instinct, but like for a long time, like I didn't know if I fit. I didn't view or think about sexuality the Mm. way other people were. And when I was introduced to the Enneagram and the instincts, it became really eye-opening for me what was happening. So I come from more of a social dominant lens. I'm a social nine and I have the sexual instinct in the repressed position. And so a lot of the work that you'll see is actually written by sexual instinct dominance. And so I had this passion and a desire to sort of be able to represent and help people that viewed and thought about sex as I did. I didn't realize why at the time until I was actually introduced to the Enneagram Mm -hmm. that a lot of what I was actually seeing had to do with my instinctual stacking as well as some of my type. And so for me, I really had this drive and desire to kind of bring that Enneagram piece into the work so people could feel more seen in who they were. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love hearing both of your stories. You're right, Sam, like it does feel like it com- you come from two different spaces. I think that's why it's so interesting to hear you speak together because I think it connects so many different kinds of people, so many different approaches to sexuality, sometimes like what we feel like inside versus what maybe we present outside. So I'm excited to keep the conversation going. One of the things you've talked about a lot, I've heard both of you mention, is how instincts play into our sexuality. Can we talk a little bit about that, like the importance of understanding our instincts and how that connects to sex? Yeah, definitely. So I think one of the surprising things for us as our whole big interdisciplinary group discovering about sex and the Enneagram from different angles 
is how important dominant instinct is in shaping sexual behavior, sexual desire patterns, sexual behavior, basically all aspects of sexuality. And type is super important too, although I know we probably won't have time to talk too much about that in this one podcast. But we found that dominant instinct is doing more of the shaping and of the sexuality. And then Lindsay always says is like more of the nuance. So I'll let her talk about that. So when we first are being introduced to this topic, it's a really helpful place to start if you know your dominant instinct. And we'll talk about each one to sort of get a sense of how your Enneagram is affecting your sexuality. Yeah. Lindsay, Sam said you talk about the nuance, how the type is the nuance. Yeah. I think what's interesting, especially in the therapeutic practice where I'm seeing clients is like you will actually see that people of the same instinctual dominant they're going to be more alike. So if you have more social dominance, for instance, coming into your office, like they're going to view and think about sex more in a similar way than say people of the same Enneagram type. And so what what we were finding in this interdisciplinary group, and I can never say that word correctly, <laughs> I know. is that I was already seen it in the office, but I think what was huge was that the research that Sam was doing and Frederick and Valerie were doing was really supporting sort of what I was seeing, which is that the stacking or the dominant instinct is really going to set the framework. And then the type comes in and sort of sets the nuance. So you're going to be more similar to people that have the same dominant instinct than you will be to people of the same type. And I think that none of us expected that to be true or for that to exist. And so that's been really interesting to sort of see that play out in their the research as well as in the therapeutic practice with our clients. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because I do think when I learned subtypes, I learned it through the lens that we do tend to feel drawn to people with the same subtype as us or we have like an easier time connecting. And I feel like, oh, of course that makes sense that we would have similar like sexualities. We have similar survival instincts. I would never have guessed that though. I would have never started there. I would have definitely wanted to start with type. I was going to say I did actually start with type. My research was originally designed around just type. And luckily I collected information also on dominant instinct. And then working with this group had inspired me to look deeper into the instinct and how that was impacting. So there's a lot we can say about type as well, but it was kind of a wild discovery to find how important instinct was. And you guys, you can't see Sam right now, but I feel like I'm like watching all the information just like want to burst out of you. And it's like so charming. I am like that. (laughs) So what about, so let's go through these instincts. So Let's start with social. I will I will talk on the social since I'm a social dominant. <laughs> and this is the way that I also approach sexuality. So one of the interesting things with social dominant is is that like I kind of think of it when we think of the three instincts, you know, each is gonna kind of have like like I think of like like a temperature level to it, right? And I know Sam's going to talk about the sexual instinct, but like sexual instinct, for instance, is going to be hot. And when you think of social instinct, it's going to be more warm. And when you think of the self-preservation, it's almost more like cold. And so when we're talking about sort of the social instinct, we're talking about the warmness. It's about bonding. It's about connection. It's about wanting to keep that thread of closeness with the partner. And so social tactics oftentimes even for flirting or connecting with people are going to be relationship building, right? Um, and, and for in particular, for me, 
when I have the social instinct in the dominant position and the sexual instinct in the last position, I'm really relying on sort of relationship building and connecting. And so to the point sometimes that like when I would like flirt, (laughs) people wouldn't know. Or sometimes I flirt unintentionally because the sexual instinct's in the last position. But it's like I, so like I will kind of use ways to get to know people. And sometimes that can be interpreted like, you know, like it's, they don't understand or get that I'm maybe interested in them because I'm taking it more slowly. They're also going to be, they keep the ticker of like, how long have we had, how long have we had sex? (laughs) Because sexy means bonding and connection. And so they're more likely to sort of like initiate or want to be sexual if it's been a while to make sure that the bond and the connection is sort of continuing to happen within the relationship. And you will see this is a little bit different with your sexual instinct dominance and your self-preservation dominance. They're also more willing to sort of meet the need of the other. Like, what do you need or want from me? I, of course, also like as as me as a nine, you're going to get a little bit of more of that, right? When you have a social nine, because there's also that desire to kind of meet the partner where they're at and meet their needs and things like that. So those are some of the things that you're going to see with the social dominance. What would you add, Sam? That was really good. I guess just remembering that evolutionarily, the social instinct is the bonding instinct, the tribal community instinct. So that just to reiterate what Lindsay already said, that becomes the function of sexuality for a social dominant person is their cohesion in my tribe, which in this day and age would be like the family unit or, you know, the dyadic unit. I think you covered most of it. What I like to talk about because people enjoy it is like how to how to get it on with a social instinct, which would be like adapting to their needs, like show them that you can adapt to their needs because they're always adapting to your needs. And it's very much about this give and take. Like, let me give to you, you give back to me and focusing on how like sex supports bonding or supports your connection. And of course, always communicating clearly and like expressing your pleasure with what they're doing for you. That can all be really, really good for the social dominant. Yeah, Lindsay, I have the same stacking as you. And when you talk, I mean, everything you said, I'm like nodding like crazy. My head's going to fall off because I feel like you just like read my chart, like my (laughs) astrology chart or something, because it is even down to the flirting. Like I, if it was someone I wanted direct, wanted to flirt with, they would never know. And if it was someone I did not want to flirt with, they would fall in love with me. And it was like, (laughs) it was like, I was putting it in the completely wrong direction, or I just didn't know how to turn it on or off in the right ways. I have also had the same thing happen where I did not intentionally give out cues that I was interested in. People are taking them as cues that I'm interested. (laughs) Yeah. And it makes sense because it is like, yeah, if you're building relationships, some people never feel that seen, you know, or never feel that like connected to. So if you're getting a lot of that like social, like, let's let let me know you, let me get in touch with you. And I was going to say, I'm also coming from the seven space, the headspace of like, I want to know you. So I think that, yeah, that can kind of be weird. That's that's interesting. What about our sexual instincts? Okay, I'll talk about that one. I'm a sexual five. So sexual dominant energy with sexuality uh, is very passionate and intense. These people tend to attract partners really easily. Like we don't have the problems y'all are talking about. (laughs) If, (laughs) If we want someone, they know it. We have no problem mm-hmm. telling them. You know, in most cases, some sometimes there's different factors, but 
there can be like a more overt sexuality, like essentially almost like a leaky sexual energy with sexual dominance that other instinct stackings are like, why are you being so sexual? Like, mm. is this even appropriate? You know, so there's this like feeling of of sexuality to them oftentimes. Depends on the type and stuff. Sexual dominants have a, a quite a low tolerance for sexual dry spells and for different reasons. And Lindsay mentioned a social dominant would be like, okay, we haven't sex for a while. We should check in, make sure we're still bonded and connected. For a sexual dominant, it's like, I need to dissolve the boundaries between you and me. And like, I need that a lot. And why aren't we doing that? And it's, you know, it's quite a problem. Like if there's a sexual dry spell, not because, and we want to be clear about this, not because sexual dominants are all like super high sex drive people and that the other dominants are. That's not true at all. But sexual dominants tend to push more through context because of how they view sexuality as so important for this merging and this passion thing. So if I'll use myself as an example. So if I were sick with a cold or very tired or hungry or thirsty, like I will put that aside to have, you know, a sexual intimacy and especially self-preservations. When we talk about that, they won't do that. You know, there's a high desire expressed by sexual dominance again because they're needing to meet this like mating instinct sexual dominant instinct is the mating instinct in terms of evolution so i need to feel desired that's a big part of the low tolerance for dry spells like i need to know you desire me i need to feel desired i need to feel like we're going into this space where the individual self isn't matter anymore that's all i can think of for that i'll add like the how to get it on with the sexual dominant which would be direct come ons like none of the subtle stuff doesn't work for us we will miss it lots of eye contact passion like talking about your connection your relationship like tell them you can't stop thinking about them that kind of stuff emphasizing the merging aspect and then like matching their intensity which can be difficult you know depending on the stacking what I, I would you add one of the things that I, I would add is just the experience of people that have sexual instinct in the repressed position with the experience of sex of sexual instinct dominant energy coming towards them I think sometimes what can happen is it overwhelms them and it can feel like sort of almost that like back off. <laughs> You're coming in too strong. Like, I don't know you well enough yet to let you kind of into those sort of boundaries. And that's a really common, like when you have those two, like in relationship, like it can just be a really difficult thing to navigate because the one person wants more dissolving the other person is like it takes time to sort of get there and so I think that's one of the things that has been huge for me mm. I think what's interesting too like having that for myself other people out there I'll be like are you really that into me you don't know me that well <laughs> and the reality is they, mm -hmm. the sexual instinct dominant person actually is that into you if they feel it. But I think it can be confusing for someone that has the sexual instinct in that repressed position, especially more like in a social dom or like, like you build the relationship and like, you want to just like, get all up in my business and <laughs> haven't built the relationship with me yet. So that's one of the things that I always like to sort of yeah. 
explain the experience from from that angst. I think it can overwhelm and then it can be frustrating for the sexual instinct dominant as well, who wants to be more intimate and merged and dissolved with you. I want to add one thing you made me think of, Lindsay, which is when you were talking about the process of kind of flirting or being sexually interested in someone like you as a social dominant, you would get to know them and there would be a lot of interest in them as a person. We don't need that as sexual dominance. <laughs> it would be, it's not a problem. Like it could be secondary, but it's, you do get more of this like love at first sight kind of vibe of it's about chemistry. It's really chemical for us. So we do feel a connection that doesn't require us to know the person and then we'll just go for it. And you can see that sexual dominance have less relationship stability as a stereotype over their life because they kind of are chasing this and that chemistry doesn't always last, obviously. This is so interesting because my husband's a sexual and I'm a social, right? So he came on just like that. Like it was like immediately he knew he put a poem, he wrote me a poem. He like chased me, right? Like it was just like, oh, I, my intentions, his intentions were very clear. And when asked what made you like reach out to her, he's like, well, she was very hot. Like he just thought I was really hot. It's like, it's just like very clear. And then, but he's also that like dissolve the boundaries. Like he would say exactly like that too. Like he would 100% say it's about being close and like tied and like intimate. And I feel like he opened me, right? Like he like allowed me to be more in tune with my sexuality and like my desire for even emotional intimacy, honestly. Like I think I used to kind of keep people at bay and he kind of opened me up and but I can see if I were resisting that influence or not able or even a different point in my life, not able to like be influenced by that, how that would create conflict or be hurtful even. I could even see myself being like, whoa, 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 <laughs> like back up. Yeah, it's so interesting. What about so our, our self-preservers? Our self it really is a more about the physical body pleasure of sex. And so it can be more focused on the end goal of orgasm, you know, not wanting to expend a whole lot of energy to get there. So they don't necessarily, not that they don't like foreplay, but they may see it not as like necessary to sort of have the pleasure that, that they want. They also are going to be the group that will have the hardest time pushing through. And I think what was really interesting for what Sam said, what we know is like, it's actually not about desire, right? So sexual instinct dominant people can have cues of mm -hmm. sexual desire, interest, and they can just go, right? But when you have a self-preservation dominant person, it's like, have I been fed? Am I warm? Did I get enough sleep? Is my bed cozy? All of these types of things. And so they're going to focus more on sort of like, are my, are my like basic mm -hmm. needs being met before I want to have sex. It was really interesting to me. I had a couple one time that I was working with that were mm -hmm. both self-preservation dominants and they were like in different rooms texting each other. And one's like, yeah, I'm really horny. Like, yeah, I am too. Well, it seems like a lot of work <laughs> to get to where you are. Ooh, at least we both feel it together. It's like, I'm, like, I'm just sharing that in the sense of like, they can be very satisfied with like even sharing, like I have desire or interest, yeah. but I might not actually move in to sex depending on whether I have the capacity or not. It can be hard, I think, sometimes 
for partners because it can be, especially like, let's say like you had a sexual instinct dominant who wants to play more with sexual energy, right? And I've had this dynamic in my office as, as well, where there's someone that's self-preservation dominant and one person that's sexual instinct dominant. And the self-preservation person's like, well, okay, like we can just like, we don't need to deal with all the like romance and the stuff in between and the foreplay and all of that. Like we can just get down to it, right? And the sexual instinct dominant, like like they almost get more out of sometimes mm -hmm. the, the plane with sexual energy, the back and forth and that like intensity. And I and always, I always like, I'm, I'm not great at describing this because it's in my last position. So I'm sure like when people that are sexual instinct dominant are like, what is this lady talking about? <laughs> and, and I know that <laughs> with me, people, it's my last position. But I do see that like they want this playing with and then that playing with is not there. There can be <laughs> sort of like, well, do you desire me? Do you want me? Do you find me sexually attractive? These types of things can kind of come into play. And it's a pretty common dynamic for me to mm -hmm. see. And the self-preservation preservation person is, is like, of course, I'm attracted to you. Like, it doesn't have to do with attraction. It's just like, how can we make sex the most efficient, make it more energy conserving? Yeah. So that's what I would add for the self-preservers. Would you add anything, Sam? Yeah. So thinking about evolutionarily, this instinct is the resource acquisition and maintenance instinct. And all three of these instincts were essential to human survival. So these folks are like hunter-gathering. And they are not going to be interested in sex if they think like a tiger is going to come eat them. Like mm. they really are attending to the, the integrity of the body first. And that is important, you know. So sexual dominance especially can take offense to or just even people who have, have more sexual dominant going on with their stacking. They can take offense and it's like you know, why aren't you interested in sex? In fact, like Lindsay said, self-preservation dominance can have super high sex drive, but they're not necessarily going to actualize it. So that mm. speaks to the difference you mentioned, Sarah Jane, between the internal feeling and the external behavior, which is really important distinction and is really important, especially for some stackings and for some types more than others. And then I'd also say, like, if you want to get it on with your self-press partner, you have to make sure their basic needs are met first. Like, get them extra sleep, make sure they have food, and make sure they're not stressed about any of those kind of things. Like, wait till their uh, time they're feeling relaxed. Keep it straightforward. You know, don't be super needy with your demands. Like, show them you're interested without putting pressure on them. And that, you know, that's sort of the effective way to come on to a self-preservation person. Yeah. Do you, so I'm sure people at home are already kind of starting to see like how this is going to impact their relationships and, and kind of putting some pieces together as you guys heard me doing as I was listening. I was like, this is my life. So how else do you see instincts impacting partnership? Like how do we, how is understanding our sexuality and our instincts going to I, I think to what's interesting for me, and I'm just going to share some of the common patterns that I actually see in my office. Like let's, I'll use self-preservation, a self-preservation dominant something that has self-preservation in the repressed positions like even if we think just about relationally right a lot of times when we have like maybe that self-preservation dominant person with the self-preservation repressed the self-preservation dominant person is often taking care of and tending to the person that has the self-preservation in the repressed position and so it can 
end up in a lot of parent-child type of dynamic where one person feels like more like they're the parents of the relationship and one person feels like they're more of the child. And that can really like in a multitude of ways affect connection, right? Because nobody wants to be parented and no one wants a defiant child mm -hmm. within their relationship as well, which is what the dynamic I'll see where one person sort of starts to push back. And so it can be like that not only does that affect a sexuality, right? Like it's really hard to want to have sex with someone that's parenting me or a person that's always defiant with me, right? And then of course, like just that like power dynamics and all of these types of things that can kind of come in play with that. And so you'll see that frequently happen. On the positive note with that, like I'll even use my own marriage, for example, like I'm a social dominant and my husband is a self-preservation five, but he has social in the last position. Like he's actually been like tending to and like taking care of his social repression, like recognizing and understanding like why this is important to have and like how it's beneficial in his life to have connection and bonding with other people. And actually like it's been like a really big growth point in our own marriage, like where then I have like more attraction to him as well. You know, and his, he has more recognition of that, but he also pulls me out of sort of some of the things that I can be like, um, you know, almost like too worried about because of the social dominance, right? Like, like, hey, what, like, does it really matter what those people think or, or don't think of you, right? That ability to kind of pull me out of like that, that worry or like that place of like, you know, we can be a little bit obsessed with sort of the dominant instinct as well. And so I see both of those things happening in relationships that I think can be huge for growth and also, you know, points of stress and conflict as well. Then similarly, like one of the things I teach is to do with where your stackings overlap. In a lot of cases, you don't see that many couples with the same stacking. In a lot of cases, you have one person's repressed is different than the other person's repressed. And then their sexuality is going to be situated in the instincts that they share. So this is probably easier to explain with an example. So if you have like a self-preservation sexual social person and then you have a social sexual self-preservation we have self-preservations repressed in that relationship and socials repressed in that relationship the only aspect they're sharing is sexual even though that's in the second position for both of them in those cases you can see that the the sexuality of the relationship is going to be a more sexual dominant type of sexuality because that's where they can find common ground that is so interesting that's crazy <laughs> to think about. That makes so much sense, but I would have never thought of that. Over time, obviously, we can balance our instincts. So usually in those cases, there's going to be a lot of frustration. Like in the example I mentioned, the self-preservation dominant is like, where's the self-preservation energy? I don't want to have sex all the time. Like the social dominant be like, where's the social energy? Where's bonding and connection? So and it's not necessarily that they're super mm -hmm. satisfied with that, you know, but that tends to be where it lands. And then as we balance our instincts, especially the repressed instinct, the sexuality of the relationship can expand to kind of touching in all three. So for those who aren't familiar, how with like having a repressed instinct, how do we start to work on I mean, I can talk a little out? bit about someone that has the sexual instinct in the repressed position and some of the things that I have been doing to try to activate and grow. So one thing that was huge for me, and this was actually my colleague Dace actually recommended this for me. So one of the things that I would do was start to wear more colorful clothing. So I wear, started wearing like more bright like pinks and greens and then just paid attention to like what it feels like in my physical body, like when I'm wearing them. And it was really this more of like, 
like, ah, like I feel more alive. I can feel, you know, I can feel how the color in, like you almost move your body differently. And it was just a very interesting thing. And so like, so like, if you notice, like, even when people like go look at my Instagram page, like you'll notice if you go, like all my clothes were like neutrals and whites and beige and very, very infrequently would you see any color on me. But if you look more and more up, I've been wearing more and more color though I'm wearing white today. And then another thing for the sexual instinct and the repression position as well is just dance. So like I will put music on when I'm alone by myself and I will just allow myself to feel the music in my body and move my body the way it wants to move to what the music is doing. Not thinking about how I should look because that's more of like the social dominant piece of like, well, what is it, you know, how should I look to fit in and how should I be moving my body? Like actually trying to let go of how I should look because this is what's expected. And then just really let my body do what it wants to do sort of in the moment with music. So that would be one thing I would say for the sexual instinct repression, which I think is actually the hardest one, right? Because we don't have like concrete examples of like exactly what this is, because it really is more of an experience that's happening within you versus I feel like for social and self-preservation, there's like more concrete examples of things to do. I think you can build your own repressed instinct. Like there's personal strategies. So for me, as I'm self-preservation repressed, it's a lot to do with finding like the joy and pleasure of feeding my body, sleeping, caring for my physical environment, and like not doing that out of a sense of obligation, but actually of joy. And I'm still really actively working on this. So uh, it's in process. But people can also work on this as couples. So what I was saying before of like, if you have your stacking, your partner stacking, what's missing in your relationship is going to be both people's repressed instinct. You can work as a couple on them. So for example, if you're missing self-preservation in the relationship, you can have like weekly finance check-ins, discuss your values around money, cook, clean, or exercise together, like rub each other's feet without a lot like sexual expectation, attending to your home. And these don't sound like they're related to sex, but as you build the instinct, like your sexuality will expand as well. Like if you guys are missing social, you can host a dinner party together, like get involved in your community together, socialize with your partner's friends or colleagues and like, you know, put forth an effort in that arena. And then like if you are missing sexual, you can do uninterrupted one-on-one time with your full attention, like no technology, talk about your relationship, what makes it so great and so sexy, you know, stay in bed all day. Like tell your partner how important they are to you. So there's also this idea that you can build um, these repressed instincts as a unit. That's fun because it almost makes it like a game. Like you get to play with like, let's try out, let's play with like the social instinct today and see what comes up. Exactly. Cool. Um, So what about individually? Like how does sexuality in the Enneagram impact our growth and our our Enneagram work? Oh my gosh, so many ways. Um, So I think it's really, it can be really transformative. So of course there's, you know, helping people understand their own sexuality. Sexuality tends to be one of these areas where we don't share. And so people are a lot of times like thinking they're the only person with certain 
desire patterns or certain proclivities or expressions and like most cases that's not true so there's can be like the destigmatizing of your own sexuality of course destigmatizing of your partner's sexuality but in terms of like growth and transcendence um, once you understand how your type is playing out in your sexual life then you can start to enact strategies to transcend your type um, mm. and and in that sense get to like a sexuality that's not so much mediated by type so I've worked with this more with type than instinct in my own work but for it has a lot to do with kind of exposing yourself to <laughs> no pun intended to things that are <laughs> like uncomfortable for you so if like a sexual dominant person is doing these non-sexual massages with no expectation that they'll have sexual intimacy like that's really uncomfortable and mm. that can bring up all kinds of things that you need to face um and i'll just bring in type for a second like a teaser of type i guess um yeah. like if you have for example type twos who are really oriented to the partner's pleasure and um even if they tend to actually know what they want but they're not saying it unlike nines who sometimes don't know what they want but with twos, if you get into this idea of your pleasure is actually a blessing to others, it's a blessing to your partner, you do some exercises where you're not allowed to give pleasure, like only receive, the mm -hmm. two is going to freak out. Like the, all yeah. their issues are going to come up from, you know, this, the sexual arena. And then from that place, a grounded place, they can look at those things and start to shift them. Wow. That is so... Can you do seven? Yeah. <laughs> I'm being selfish. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so for sevens, there's um, a lot of enthusiasm and positivity. And they're like, usually they're willing to try anything. And they like a lot of novelty, like mix it up. Um, and the issue we see with sevens is that when sexual intimacy is, quote, over to the seven, there's a, like a jumping up and a moving on right away. <laughs> she, she's laughing <laughs> oh that's funny <laughs> that okay. like the partner you know can take personally first of all but the idea that there's this rich arena in the after that's almost like the fall or the winter you know the autumn or the winter of the sexual experience which is like the come down the you know the bonding and the intimacy that happens after sex Sevens tend to totally ignore that and run away from it because it's really deep. And sevens are like, no, like I'm just going to go do something else. So for sevens, like embracing the afterward and staying with those feelings, we can see enormous emotional release. There's a, like a big thing with sevens crying after sex if they don't like jump up and start doing stuff. And that's so beautiful. If you're with a safe partner, like let them hold that space for you. That is so fascinating because I, I married a sexual four, right? And so like when I reworked on that, like how do I sit in the end and the after? Because that's so important to him, that space. Um, that's like his favorite spot or, you know, the before and the after, like the best parts, which is like so interesting. That is so fascinating. What should people know as they start to go on this journey for themselves? Like as like each of your like final start here words. I, I think what has been 
huge for me and why I've used this in my therapy practice um, is because one of the things that I've really wanted to say to people is, is all sexuality is healthy and normal. And I think what the Enneagram does um, it with just, you know, especially the instinctual stacking and understanding that like all three of these are normal ways to approach sex. And even though society is going to give you um, more often than not the sexual instinct dominant way of approaching sex as being the quote unquote, sort of how it should be, right? Mm -hmm. That all of them have value and all of them are normal ways to approach sex and just being able to kind of like, I think, own sort of like who we are sexually. And then also like what we can learn from the others, like how could we expand on and how can we play with more sexual energy? Um, and it's like for me as a, as a sex therapist, it's always just been like, I want people to own who they are holistically, their sexual selves, their relational selves, and all of those, those types of pieces. And I think having the Enneagram as a lens to look into that has been really huge in my practice. More people see themselves as normal. They see themselves having generosity for how and why their partner is the way that they are. Mm -hmm. And the Enneagram gives language to that, that I think a lot of people haven't had before. And especially when you can kind of layer that with um, the sexuality piece. And so that's been big for me. Mm. Love that. I guess in terms of where to start in a concrete sense, if you don't know your full stacking, like your dominant instinct and your repressed instinct, I would figure that out first. And if you're partnered, also your partners, because once you know that, it's almost like light will pour in immediately on your areas of sexual frustration as soon as you know your stacking differences. And we both have a lot of content posted on this. But we've talked to people who are like, oh, I'm so frustrated with my partner. And as soon as we say it's not them, it's it's self-preservation dominant, it's sexual mm -hmm. repress, it's these things that a lot of other people are doing. Like Lindsay said, compassion can come in, self-judgment and other judgment can disappear. So I'd say figure out your stacking, maybe your partner's stacking, and start looking into it there. And how can we connect with you? So each of you, if we are like interested in working with you, interested with connecting with you online, where can we find you? Sure. I'm on Instagram as Lindsay Frazier, LMFT, just my name and then LMFT afterwards. Or you could also email me at Lindsay at lindsayfraser.com and Lindsay's L-Y-N-D-S-E-Y. And I'm, I know that our names will be there because both, both can be spelled multiple different ways. <laughs> um, but that's be the best way to, to find me is either. And then my website is lindsayfraser.com as well. I'm on Instagram at enneagasm. So E-N-N-E-A underscore G-A-S-M. Mm -hmm. Uh, my website is enneagramsexpert.com and I have research there and I also do coaching on this. And Lindsay and I do free episodes, if you will, about sex and the Enneagram every month. We do Sexy First Friday on Instagram Live every first Friday of the month at 1 p.m. Eastern. And we have a different subtopic of the Enneagram and sexuality every time. So it gets pretty deep. So you can also catch us there. I highly recommend those too. I love those. Thank you all so much. And we'll make sure to link to everything in the show notes for you. But thank you so much. Really cool episode and so much good information. Thank you. It was so fun. Yeah. Thank you. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.